Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Garrett Kellett and Chloe Gilly. So welcome to the podcast, Garrett and Chloe. I'll let you both introduce yourselves. So Garrett, go first. Hi, yeah. Hi, uh, Marion. Yeah, I'm Charter Building Surveyor. Over 17 years surveying experience. Recently set up my own company, which has been trading approximately 18 months now. And yet really have a passion for building pathology and all things geeky like brick sizes and multi mixes, etc. You're not you're not alone, Garrett. You're not alone at all. And Chloe, introduce yourself, Chloe. Hi, I'm Chloe Gilly. I am a special needs teacher. I've been teaching for 17 years. I myself have ADHD and I am looking into creating resources for children that are inclusive and celebrate different diversity heroes. So those listening to the podcast might be thinking, what is she up to now and who is she chatting to and why? And I guess for for listeners, just to give them a give you all a bit of background of how we've got to this conversation today. I've recorded, I think this podcast is going to be number 25. We've had over six and a half thousand downloads, which is amazing. I feel like some kind of you know, radio <laughs> to DJ now. And But one of the things I've noticed in talking to some really brilliant surveyors, and, uh, and our podcasts are mainly conversations with surveyors, predominantly SMEs, about their business and how they got started and those career journeys. And they're quite inspirational. I've enjoyed me me chatting with people mainly. But one thing that I noticed was out of the, I think when I got to about 15, 16 episodes that I'd recorded, that six or seven people just happened to drop in the conversation that they had dyslexia. And, you know, some conversations we talked a little bit about that, but not in any great detail. And then the more I got talking to surveyors and I guess sort of tuned into this, I started to hear that more and more surveyors were would class themselves as neurodiverse, that they had dyslexia or, or, or those kind of things. And it's got me curious. Now, I don't profess to know anything about it. And I'm a bit apprehensive about having this conversation about saying something stupid and that will offend somebody. But also I think it's important to have the conversation because if I've noticed just through the people that I've spoken to that quite a high percentage have these challenges, then, you know, we need to be talking about that, that a lot more. Now, both of my brother and sister have dyslexia. They didn't find out until they were in their 20s when they were in uh, university. I don't know much about it because I'd left home and, and, and things by then. But I remember thinking, yeah, that explains it. Explains sort of the challenges they, they had at school and, and things like that. But it's not just dyslexia and, and the things that maybe perhaps, Chloe, if we can just start with you. I don't really understand what neurodiverse means. And I know some surveyors who have autism. You talked about ADHD. I think there's ADD, dyslexia, dys- dyspraxia, dyscalculia. You know, there's all sorts. It's just a, a minefield. So perhaps we just start off with an informal 
what what is that and what does that mean it is it is an umbrella term and basically it is a diversion from what is considered as typical or normal i'm very passionate about self-identification and being passionate and being very present at work about having your condition my i was diagnosed at 35 so it was quite a surprise and initially the advice I was given was not to tell anybody which I felt quite horrified by because I work in a special needs school and I've found that since I've been open about my condition and been able to explain to staff what it looks like and how I work it's just been much better for everybody in the team so I really would say that even though these conditions could be put as an invisible disability The way in which it affects your life is not invisible. And so you need to be really open and honest with those you work with so that you can have the best outcome for everybody. So I think from from the bits that I've I've read, I think part of the challenge is that there are so many different types of, is it symptoms of it? Is that the right word to use? There's so many different ways that it can come about in a different, in a person. Exactly, characteristics. And and obviously with it being a spectrum condition, I work with children with autism and every year the children that pass through my class are completely different packages, verbal, non-verbal, good with numbers. Everyone has their own unique skills and talents and and that's the same for the, you know, it's across the entire board of humanity, not just uh, exclusive to people who've got neurodiverse conditions. So it does manifest in lots of different ways. One person with ADHD is completely different to another likewise with autism so although there are some common traits that you might pick up and certain behaviors but again there's a risk of stereotyping you know each individual is different and the thing I took from the conversations that I had uh, on these podcasts was that these were people with just absolutely amazing resilience uh, to get where they've got you know to run their own businesses and to achieve what they've they've done and an absolute passion for the work that they do and that you know I talk about surveying superpowers and that we've all got a superpower in the work that we do and uh, I see that on the mastermind the small business mastermind that I, that I now run that you know surveyors do have particular traits you know we're interested in detail work we're interested in buildings and, and being outside. And so there are lots of common characteristics, as you say, that would naturally draw us to to that kind of work. But what really impressed me was that despite the challenges that they've had, they still got to be successful in business. And I I did wonder, you know, is, is it everything that sort of led them to today has led them to working for themselves rather than for for a corporate and and those things? And maybe there, these are some of these trends that we, uh, that we see. I think often with a late diagnosis, um, you've inadvertently developed coping skills that you just didn't realise. I know when I looked into my sort of coping strategies that I'd employed at work and just generally through life, that they were actually in the recommended coping strategies for someone with ADHD or autism, which I'd never actually formally been taught, but I had acquired them over time. So yes, we can be a fantastically resilient bunch with fantastic work ethic. I know that I do suffer from low self-esteem because I can sometimes make careless errors, so I overcompensate. There's presenteeism. I've got hyper-focus, so sometimes I can find it quite hard to leave an engaging task. So, you know, there, there are positives that you can definitely take from that, but, you know, it, it, it's a balance, and sometimes you've got to be very aware that, oh, I've got so focused in this project that I need to set some timers so I come away from it and I eat my dinner and I am sociable because if I'm so engrossed, that's me gone for the day. 
Like and you know, I, I think there'll be a lot of surveyors that resonate with some of that. Um, Garrett, tell me a bit about your journey and how you discovered you were dyslexic. Okay, so I, I left school, I think around about 1995, with just two GCSEs. Went on to do, went on, went on to college. I wasn't able to do A levels on, you know, because of obviously sort of the, the, the grades that I'd got. So I did a maths GCSE and a business GMVQ. Failed my maths again. Had to reset that the second time. I think they just, well, what was the third time? I think they just felt sorry for me in the end. And uh, yeah, just just gave it to me out of sort of sympathy. Really went on to do a HND uh, at Salford University and went out into went out into work. And at that point, yeah, you know, everything had sort of flown on, under the radar. Really, I went back to Salford Uni to do my degree in, in 2006 in one of the one of the lectures we were doing some doing, doing some maths I think it was and um yeah I, the, the lecturer had a look at what, what, what I was sort of working my workings out and everything he said oh, I think we've got a bit of a problem here will you come and see me after class so I, I thought I was sort of in, in, you know in trouble but he put me forward to see an educational psychologist um, who did a test testing on me, which is sort of basically me sort of writing things down, answering questions for about an hour. And off the back of that, I was I was diagnosed with with dyslexia, and that was when I was 27 years of age. So a bit similar to, to Chloe in the fact that you know it was it was, it was quite quite you know away far away you know in, into life, and one where you know I'd gone through school undiagnosed, gone through college undiagnosed. And I'd actually gone through sort of university the first time to do my HND uh, undiagnosed as well. Uh, and now we look back and think, how did that happen? And how, how can that happen? And I guess schooling has changed so much over the years and attitudes towards it. You know, I remember when my brother got diagnosed first and I just thought, yes, it was obvious to me. I can't, I can't remember how it was. It was like 15 years ago now. I think, yes, of course, that, that makes absolute sense, you know. And he, was, um, he wasn't a naughty kid, but he was always in trouble and he was always challenging. And, you know, I, I can talk about him because he lives in South America now. So, you know, but he was a right pain in the ass. And I guess, you know, and I see it with my own kids, you know, when they're troubled by something or something isn't working, it comes out in their, their behaviour. And so do... Were you a naughty boy, Garrett? <laughs> Were you in trouble at school? Yeah, I think the main one with me was was just as easy, quite easily distracted, and with with the subjects because a lot of it had sort of gone over and over my head. I'd lost sort of interest in it, interested in it, in it really. I, I wouldn't say I was disruptive or anything, you know, like that. And and I think you know, sort of further you fall behind on a subject, you know, you get to the point where you sort of completely completely lost in it. Really, I think in in retrospect, um, you know, probably would be better just focusing on you know five or six core subjects instead of you know going out onto sort of the, the nine that I did. But obviously, you know, that, that's in that's in retrospect. And obviously, Chloe, if you're dealing with lots of different children, then you must see see it all. I do, but what I was actually going to mention just on the back of what Garrett said there, I think girls are massively missed. And I just unearthed some school reports of my own, um, basically dating back from when I was in the first year of senior school all the way through to my A-levels. 
academically I was very bright but I was a very challenging pupil a non-conformist answered back one of the best quotes I saw was Chloe will talk to anybody who cares or who doesn't care to listen it doesn't matter where she's seated in class she will talk to anybody things like saying it has not been without some pain that Chloe has made learned new lessons this year because I was constantly in trouble I had what you would call maybe a smart mouth. I was quite good at finishing off teacher's sentences and things like that. Um, But I was also a daydreamer looking out of the window, not motivated by maths or science subjects. But when it was art, I was, you know, hand was up. I was keen. I was ready to participate. Um, So for me, when I read those reports, which was only the other week when I found them, it was just such a revelation to see it in black and white. And I just wondered, why was that missed? So from my own point of view... I was actually working in what you call a pupil referral unit when it was discussed with my boyfriend. He had listened to a radio program and he said, this is about adult ADHD and you do all of these things. And I was saying to him, get away. I work with children who have been expelled from school. And pupil referral is about 80% or in the one I was working of children with ADHD. And I was just saying, this is a naughty boy's problem. This isn't this isn't a 35-year-old woman. You know, what what are you talking about? But I took his, his ideas seriously. I printed out the a diagnostic checklist and I took it to my doctor and um, the rest is history. I was referred and within six months had the diagnosis. But I do see a lot um, and I have pushed for several children to get diagnosed early. Um, and some parents are very reluctant and say, oh, I don't want them labelled with that. It's a behaviour thing. Whereas some parents are saying, oh, yes, this is this is the answer. Let's let's do this. So, yeah, you can have very different approaches to how people accept it. And I guess we're now, you know, the fact that we're talking about it makes it more, um, you know, acceptable in society, you know, and the more we do that, the more, the less stigma, obviously, they'll, they'll be with that. You mentioned uh, self-diagnosis and how, you know, is the way to get, you know, the way to get officially diagnosed is you'd have a test somewhere, you know, and somebody would would do that. But you mentioned people, uh, self-diagnosis. So is that sort of people working it out for themselves? I think basically my boyfriend had heard this, this um, radio program and he said you do all of these things so I went online and I found the ADHD like the world organization which is based in the Netherlands ironically I used to live two streets away from it when I lived in the Netherlands but there we go and um, I downloaded a form which was called the Diva 2.0 I think now they've replaced it with the Diva 5 I took that to my doctor I highlighted the things that I did and I went this looks pretty much that I'm going down this route. And I was within six months from initial referral, and it was a self-referral to diagnosis. Was It was good for me, but I do know in other parts of the country it can take a lot longer and it's not always done by NHS. A lot of people um, fund it privately and there are a lot more organisations popping up that will take you through the process privately at a cost. So you, you discover, both of you, that you've got this challenge. What do you then do? I mean, Garrett, how did that change things for you? Well, at university, yeah, I was allocated extra time to do my exams, which was which was good. There's also uh, an allowance made, obviously, for, for things like sort of spelling mistakes um, and you know, such like. Yeah, apart from that, I, th- I think sort of what, what Chloe touched on earlier is, is 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 sort of resilience, really. You know, that sinking feeling that, that you get when, you know, you've worked on a report, you send it off and there's a stunning mistake in it or, you know, it's, you know, to get those setbacks, you know, when, and as a young professional, sort of really affected me, actually. 
so yeah, so then it's a case of, of putting sort of mechanisms, uh, yeah, mechanisms in place. I use Grammarly, which sort of checks all all my sort of documents and, and emails. I have um, a, a PA who does all that appointments and all the admin side, which which is really good. Does all my schedule scheduling for me, and for things like instructions on my email, I have set templates as well, which basically means sort of cuts out what I have to type, just putting the names, yeah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you've obviously sort of got these strategies in place, effectively, is what you've what you've built up. Garrett, have you always worked for yourself, or have you worked in a company or corporate before? Yeah, my sort of experience goes from yeah public sector and um, private sector, and that's commercial, and that's with commercial building consultancy um, across to across to residential. Um, I decided to take the plunge. Well, sort of circumstances dictated that, that I took the plunge, really. You know, I, I struggled at school and sort of the same as sort of Chloe, really, sort of sitting out, looking over the fields, sort of every day thinking, you know, there's no way I'm going to let my child go through, you know, what, 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 I'm, what I've sort of gone through. So, yeah, my daughter, she just missed out on a place on, on 11 plus, which if you live in traffic, means you can go to grammar school and, and the local authority fund it. So I sent her to, to an independent school, uh, and, and the fees are quite quite significant. And it, you know, I, I went to my, my former employer and said, "Look, you know, you know, I need basically, you know, an extra thousand pounds a month after tax on my salary." You know, I knew, you know, they weren't going to do it, but it, it was just I was going to do extra work on on the weekend, and uh, you know, just to make up that shortfall. And yeah, sort of. You know, coach a turn gamekeeper really. So sort of looked at, at you know at the numbers and yeah, you know decided to yeah I'd say to to, to to take the plunge and, and go off on, on my own. So I, I think you know if I hadn't had that sort of desire, if you like, to to, to send you know my daughter, to, you know, or give her the best platform to succeed, I, I may still be working you know as an employee. In hindsight, you know, looking back as it stands, it's the best decision that I've ever made. And in terms of having dyslexia then, has was that challenging when you were at a, being employed in a, a, a corporate? You know, I, I guess now, you know, you, you can put these strategies in place, your PA and different things. You know, was it harder when you were at, an employer, at being employed? Yeah, I think in the commercial building consultancy world, you know, it's very high pressured, still got that sort of macho culture really I think I think think that's fair to say and yeah you know things like numbers especially I'm I'm, you know I'm absolutely awful you know and these are going out to you know clients you know that potentially you know they see stuff like that you know could basically jeopardize sort of funds you know that that, that we're working for so um sorry Mario we just have to just recap on that so so the so the question was I guess what I'm getting to is at when you when you're employed is it harder yeah. to manage your dyslexia? You, do you get the support from an employer or not? Yeah, I mean, sort of no is the honest answer to, to, to that one. And um, when I applied for jobs, there was always a section uh, on things like disabilities, etc., uh, etc. Et and I never used to fill that out out of embarrassment. It eventually, I did come round to the way of thinking that you know it's something that you know I do need to disclose, and I found it nothing more than than a box ticking exercise really there's never anything put in place and you know off the the back of me saying i was dyslexia you know nothing you know of someone sort of proofreading work for example 
it was very much a case of just get on with it, basically. Well, let me ask another question, maybe Chloe. Is this a disability? Do you tick the box for, for disability? Well, I haven't applied for a job since, but I would be ticking the box for disability. I am the NEU, which is the National Education Union Northern Representative for Disabled Teachers. With my neurodiversity, I thought it was really important to give invisible disabilities a face and encourage more teachers to self-identify. For me, I went through the access to work process on recommendation of a local support group for ADHD adults, and it was not an easy process. It took a few months for them to come in and assess the workplace and see my style of working but I have finally got the support that I needed and that is I get a coaching session initially I got it once a week now I get it bi-weekly or depending on how often I need that intervention and that has been an absolute revelation it has turned around the way I work it has made me much more effective at work and also it's given me just the the room to be a bit nicer to myself and to kind of empower me to to make decisions and not to always feel so guilty about everything and in addition to that when I was going through that process I also discovered that I have Mears Erlen syndrome which meant that I needed a blue filter to access computers and to read text because I didn't actually realize that the text I was looking at was kind of juddering all the time and that linked to ADHD too so I would recommend anybody who does identify as disabled with an invisible disability, with a neurodiversity, get on to access to work. It's one of the most unclaimed benefits. And, you know, working people are entitled to that, to have the reasonable adjustments put in place to make them not just hang on at work and not just be surviving, but to actually thrive. And it made such a difference to me. But it wasn't without difficulty. It did take a long time to get the things in place. But now that they are, it's been a life changer. That sounds really useful. We'll put a link to that in the podcast show notes and, and the blog. And from an employer's point of view, it's really hard, the whole discrimination piece you know no we shouldn't discriminate but when you're faced with somebody who might struggle writing reports and that's what we do and might struggle with the number of zeros you put on the end of evaluation you know and and that's what we we're all about I can see why some people wouldn't hire somebody if they've got these challenges but equally you know I come back to to this surveying superpower and what we're really good at and the the strengths that we have and and everybody who's supported if you're supported in your work then you can absolutely thrive in your work. You're absolutely right. You both sort of mentioned coping strategies. And I think this was something that came up on a couple of the podcast chats that I did, that people sort of got to their sort of later years, if you like, and realised that, well, they've been coping with it already, you know, and, and that's why they do the thing that they do that way. Garrett, you mentioned sort of, you know, using Grammarly and, and having a PA. How does it affect your... Does, or, or does it affect your surveying work? You know, you're out on site in your routine and, and those things, or does it not at all? I think when I'm on site, not not massively, t- to be honest, because that is where we're taking notes, uh, you know, drawing plans out, uh, you know, sketching the details, etc. Uh, I think the issue for, for me personally is is actually the, the, the report writing. You know, sort of, sort of reports, I do send them off for, for proofreading. That's either to... Sort of members of my family, or or to, or to Joe, you know, my, my PA, just just as as an extra belt and braces approach. Because again, sort of my view is, you know, it, and, and this is coming from commercial building build consultancy background, that you know, we sent a report out with a full stop missing. It was pulled up by the director and thrown literally back at us from you know across across the desk, and that's 
sort of the standard that I set myself in my work. And like I say, you know, to see any mistakes, it, it, it does sort of give me that, that sinking feeling. So th- there is a sort of a realisation as well, and it does come with age, that I'm not going to be perfect. And, and, you know, and there is sort of an acceptance from myself that, yeah, you know, ultimately there are going to be things sent out with small, small spelling mistakes on it. And, you know, I've put things in place as a safety net to catch that. But ultimately, you know, they slip through, they sort through. And, uh, yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, I think many of us in our career will have had bosses like that who have passed a piece of work back to us and you develop a fear, a fear of getting it wrong, a fear of failure. And so it's a really difficult thing then to to overcome because if you've got that additional challenge, I guess, of dyslexia, then a bit like Chloe, you were saying earlier on, is you go over and above into the detail. And I see that with a lot of surveyors who might be listening to this and thinking, yeah, some of this resonates or, and in their heart and deep down, they might know they have some of these challenges, but you know, they're getting by and they don't need to get, get diagnosed. But what they do is they overcompensate and they spend a lot of time on the detail and a lot of time on those reports for, for fear of, of getting it wrong. And, you know, detail like that, you know, can make us quite anxious anyway. You know, I look at reports and contracts and I've got to be in the right frame of mind to read it. I don't have dyslexia, you know, but even I've got to be in the right frame of mind. And, but I know when I've got to do something important, I go over and over and over it again. So I can imagine how hard it must be for, for the fear. But, but the fact is there are coping strategies. You can have somebody to proofread you know, and that just takes some of that, that weight away. And one of the, whilst we do do professional reports and yes, it's got to be right. And, you know, should there be spelling mistakes in it? Yes, no. But do you know what? I, I very much go with functional, not embarrassing, you know, and it's getting the customer what, what they need. So long as you're not exposing yourself in a position where you might get sued by the something that you miss out or spell wrong or, or whatever, you know, functional, not embarrassing, does most of us okay. And, you know, so then having those contingencies of proofreading and somebody to help on top is obviously going to help you get to where you need to be. One of the things I'm, I'm interested in is, you know, whether there's any trend between, you know, Garrett, obviously you explained sort of your experience and I've heard from, you know, the people in the podcast who, who dropped in about some of their challenges, whether actually working for yourself as, a, as an SME is actually quite a smart move, whether that's as a surveyor or, or in what, any, any industry. Do you see any of that, Chloe? Well, during the lockdown period, um, I've never worked for myself. I've always worked for either county council or I lived abroad for about six years and I worked in independent school. But I have actually developed these resources that will help a lot of children and contain diverse role models, which I didn't feel were covered in the sort of easy read text for children with autism. So I found myself losing sleep at night because I'm so passionate about these projects and I've got my little ideas book next to my bed and I'm, I'm writing things down at night. And if I can get this off the ground, I think it's going to be a fantastic idea. But I do know that for me, 
when I have worked most successfully in an organisation, be it any school, I've worked in a lot of schools that did apply for a long time as well. I always found that I succeeded more when there was really clear leadership and often quite structured rules. And I wonder if this goes back to my own education because I went to a very strict secondary school. And although I had a lot of difficulties with accepting the rules, I think maybe in that really tight structure, I was able to thrive because I knew what was expected. And even now, you know, if a message to me isn't clear, I will question. I think having the diagnosis has given me the confidence to say, excuse me, can you rephrase that? Or can can you just repeat it to make sure that I have understood what you exactly meant? Because sometimes people don't always say exactly what they mean. (laughs) And although I don't take things really literally in education, it's always really important to have you know, a new style of working clarified or a new expectation about data clarified because sometimes someone will say something, but what they want is something completely different. And I had a really good boss a few years ago in the Netherlands, and this was before the diagnosis, and he actually said, when I speak to you, Chloe, and I look into your eyes, it's like you're having six conversations in your head at the same time. He said, so what would really be good is when I tell you something, just play it back, just play it back, because you've got a recorder. And that has been the best piece of advice that I have ever had. It made me focus. And bear in mind, I didn't know at this time that I had ADHD, but it really kind of helped me to process any instructions verbally that I was given and be able to take them away. And instead of thinking, oh, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, what am I doing tomorrow? Because I would always have these multiple tabs open in my brain. So it was a really good manager who spotted that and gave me a little survival technique to work with. So and then that's a really interesting point about rules, you know, having having rules and having that structure to work to. And some companies will be better than, than others than that. And you can have the rules and the structure so long as you're then set up for success. And that's where the support comes in. So if you're if you let people know that you've got this challenge, then you can arguably be able to work together to make sure that you that you can work go forward and you can and you can thrive. But it is all about that that structure and, and whether that whether that works for you. And I guess sort of working for yourself, you get to create that structure. Kara, can I ask you, do you know many other surveyors who have dyslexia, who work hmm. for themselves? I, I don't know. Even throughout my professional career, I've, I've actually never come across anyone, any, any work colleagues that I know of either. Yeah, so I think, you know... Not that we necessarily need a network of surveyors who have dyslexia who can talk to each other, but I, you know, I know six and I've chatted to them and I know a few others who've got in touch, you know, after hearing some of the interviews or, or in the surveyor hub. So there's clearly a, a people out there and I think it'd be really interesting to have a look at, you know, how the businesses are set up, what works for them, what, what doesn't. And that's all part of that sort of pooling that, you know, sort of pooling that knowledge together. I mean, we do have that in education um, through my union and the Disabled Members Network. I met lots of neurodiverse teachers at the last Disabled Members Conference and we've set up a WhatsApp group and through the pandemic, it's been an absolutely fantastic support. I couldn't recommend it enough trying to make connections with other people um, who have the same backgrounds, the same kind of employment, but also might have you know, experience of how they've overcome struggles and how they've approached an employer or how they've solved a problem. Um, so I would definitely recommend doing that because it really, really helped me. I can't can't say enough how much that helped me. One of the things I've always sort of been mindful of is accessibility, as in, you know, how 
plain English, how easy it is to read something, websites, colours and, and that kind of thing. And I guess that's for my customer experience background uh, in the kind of work that I that I used to do. When I was having a, a bit of a Google about dyslexia in my limited preparation for this very intelligent chat, I heard uh, or read that there was a, a like a dyslexia font that could be could be used. And it got me thinking because one of the things that I think that happens a lot in our interest uh, in our industry, Garrett, is that you know we we have these rules of what we should do and don't do. We have to decipher them, and they're very very text heavy. You know, if we think about red book evaluations or some of the RICS guidance, and you know the the things that come out, they're really well. I mean, I haven't always got the appetite to read them. I need the right the right yeah. brew and biscuit <laughs> to get through some of them. So, you know, if you've got that challenge, or actually you know, a big piece of text is is heavy. Should we be doing more as an industry to make it accessible for people with neurodiversity challenges to actually understand the rules and the standards? Yeah, I think I think that's that's, that's a good and, and, and fair point, uh, Marion. And I, I think it's like anything. You know, the, the more it's sort of raised, then you know maybe these you know avenues you know will, will, you know will, will be looked at or you know and, and there may be changes i think as it stands you know as a dyslexic person you know we have to work harder than others and, and work extra hours and yeah you know it's just another <laughs> you know just another um yeah yeah just 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 another sort of challenge that you know that we have to overcome so it's another barrier isn't it At every stage it just feels like a barrier and and that's where you you know, you build resilience, you get these coping strategies, but I can just see how so many people must feel really weary with it. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. I mean, I find reading off a computer really difficult, uh, certainly when I'm proofreading reports. You know, I was, again, you know, this is sort of a coping, you know, mechanism coping strategy, but it's something that I found, that, oh, you know, I can actually read it a lot better on um, you know, on paper rather than on, rather than on the screen. So, you know, that's something that, that I generally try to try to do. But like I say, you know, some of these documents run into, you know, sort of tens, you know, hundreds of pages sort of thing. So it does have sort of restrictions on, you know, in, in that respect. I was reading um, an article that came out of RICS. I can't remember what it was called now. I'll have to put the link in the in the uh, in the notes. But it was about, you know, sort of skills in construction and in the construction sector and, you know, how that sort of starts at school and things. But nowhere did it mention dyslexia. Nowhere did it mention any of these sort of neurodiverse challenges. And unless we're talking about it, we include it as a consideration. You know, it's, we're, not, we're not really getting to the root of the problem, are we? No, uh, we're not, Marion. So true. And I think the successes and contributions of people with neurodiversity do need to be celebrated more across more industries than, than construction. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in education at the moment. I'm trying to show the children that I teach that other people who have got the same conditions as them have been successful so that they can see themselves in the, the texts that I create. Because it is important that, you know, all sections of society are represented and that you can see people who are like you, you know, doing well in what they do. It gives you a glimmer of hope and, you know, makes each day that you wake up worth something. Um, So I would definitely say, like, you know, employers and, and all of these policies need to be updated to include people with neurodiversity but it needs to be written with people with neurodiversity because nothing should be done about people without them 
I know that what makes me really successful is that when lengthy documents are given out, I've either got a bit more time to read them or I can colour code them in some way or I can have ownership of them and redistribute them in a way in which my brain will take them in a bit better. Um, but I'm quite fond of an infographic as well where things are a little bit more symbolised and a bit more straightforward and it's just a different way of presenting it so it makes an impression in, in my brain so I can retain it. That's that's the main thing. Yeah, and, and even on a... Even if you don't have the these challenges, you know, we know that some of us are you know, more likely to listen to a podcast than to read a blog or we're more visual. And we all have those sort of auditory, whatever the words are, approach anyway. And this is just an extra sort of dimension to it. And and I think it's a really valid point about creating these documents and creating these rules and, and standards and everything else with people, co-create rather than dictate, because the variety is so, you know, of challenges is is so huge, isn't it? Exactly. And by making the world accessible to more people, you're only going to enhance the overall environment. I know some companies can wince at the cost of reasonable adjustments or the cost of adapting resources in such a way that more people can access them. But in the long term, by having a more inclusive organisation, no matter what kind of work you're in, is only going to yield benefits in the long term. And I think that's a really valid point, isn't it? You know, we think about diversity, inclusion, it's about gender or it's about whatever shade of colour our our skin is. But actually that sort of diversity of thinking and how we approach things and our problem solving skills and our approach to our to our work in the built environment, you know, makes a we all come up from different angles and we could come up with you know, the the solution, the cure, so to speak, just by making sure that everybody is included and we get we get well rounded you know, sort of way way of working. So for out there, there may be some people who are, some surveyors who have been doing the work for a long time might recognise some of these things that we've talked about today, might know in their hearts perhaps that they, they might have these challenges. What would you, Garrett, what would you say to, say to a surveyor out there? Uh, well, you know, as a young surveyor, you know, like I say, Going back to the start of the podcast, you know, I, I left school with, with, with two, GCSEs, two GCSEs. It's not held me back in the fact that I went on to, to university and, and ended up yeah, getting a, a first class degree with, with honours and with the second highest mark in, in the entire year. So, you know, it, it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's not something to be ashamed about. It's something, you know, that, that, you, can, that you can live with, put steps in place just to try and make things a bit, a bit easier. And yeah, go out there and have a really successful career. Yeah, super. Anything you'd like to add, Chloe? I think it's really important that if people feel anything resonates, for them to start looking into getting a diagnosis because of whatever condition it may be. Because at that point, for me, it felt like a jigsaw piece had been put in place to complete a bigger picture and it just gave me so much more permission to be kinder to myself and to be proud of the achievements that I'd made despite having this condition and and to celebrate that I'm a resilient person who thinks outside of the box and who actually brings something quite different and fresh to the organisation I work in and so I do feel that since I've had my diagnosis it's definitely you know it's it's made me feel empowered and just made me want to be a positive advocate for people with neurodiversity and 
definitely, if you do feel anything resonates, seek a diagnosis and start the process because it can be lengthy. And obviously you have to examine yourself and look deep inside and see the the criteria that you fit. And that can be difficult. You know, I had to look at things, old school reports. My mum had to make a phone call about what I was like as a child. And, and you know, reading those things back, it's, it can be quite startling. But I think, you know, as an adult, I now look back and I just think, I wish I'd done this sooner. I wish I'd known at school. Yeah. So go for it if you need to do that. And I think the thing that I would say to any employers out there is really to open up the conversation, you know, open up the conversation and make it easier for those who have some of these challenges or may have some of these challenges to, to voice their concerns and to get the support that they need. You know, it's, it's a responsible thing to do. No one comes to work to do a bad job. Sometimes we struggle but very often, you know, the warning signs are there. The warning signs are there. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm just recalling, you know, one lady that, that I knew a number of years ago. She was always known as being a bit difficult. When actually, you know, she did, looking back, she probably did have some kind of challenge like that. You know, would she ever get diagnosed? Probably not. Would her employer ever have stepped in? Probably not. You know, and I just think that's a shame and a wasted opportunity for somebody who was so talented in in an industry. So for me, it would be employers, just get curious, get curious and look at what you need to do and don't be, don't be afraid of it. But look, Chloe and Garrett, it's been really good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having a chat. And so I hope anybody listening that um, it inspires you to just start that conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.